This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. There's a new book out called Car Wars Down Under, the untold story of Australia's first land speed record, written by Murray Hubbard. I wondered if it was a story for the mechanically minded, a car enthusiast, a lone backyard mechanic with an inventive approach involving carburetors and camshafts. As it turns out, it is a rollicking yarn involving hardcore business, invective marketing, ambition, a high-risk approach to communication, the occasional rogue character, and intense competition. And it's set around the time of the First World War, which that alone produced some unexpected situations. Like a good biography, it's not just a list of the fine details of one person's life. It's about the life and times of the people in an event. This should not surprise those who know Murray, who is a motoring journalist, but among other things was a three-time finalist for investigative reporting in the Walkley Awards. And he wrote the manuscript for The Day of the Roses, a Channel 10 miniseries and telemovie. G'day, Murray. G'day, David. How's it going? Mate, uh, I enjoyed the book immensely. Now, the first chapter begins indicating the sort of people you will be talking about and there's a photo in there as well. Where was it and who was it? Edward Eager in two cars parked in front of the uh, Cheops, the biggest pyramid in Egypt. <laughs> now, there's got to be a link there to selling cars in Australia. <laughs> Edward Eager was one of the main characters of the book. Why was he there and what was he driving? He formed a friendship with uh, John Willies North from uh, Willies Cars and... He was an American, born in uh, near Toledo, and after this friendship with uh, John Willys, he applied for and got the rights to sell Willys cars in the Southern Hemisphere, plus in Africa. So he was in Africa signing up uh, the new dealer in uh, from Alexandra, and obviously they had a couple of cars shipped there before he got there, and they decided to... Uh, do a bit of uh, two-wheel driving and four-wheel drive country out to the big pyramid in 1911. He was an American, but he had moved to Australia. Did he think the Willies, I know some say it should be pronounced Willis, but we, I think we all know it as Willies. Willies, yeah. Was it a good car for Australia? I think um, when you reflect on the cars that were good for Australia, certainly Willies was up there. They had reliability, they were affordable, they weren't as cheap as the T-model, but they were uh, probably a fair bit easier to drive than the T-Model. And uh, along with Studebaker was another good uh, brand also for Australian conditions. They were, they were fairly toughly built, the Willys, as were the Studebakers and also the T-Model. Edward had had a bit of a background in bicycles. Uh, that was a strong component of many of the players in the early time of uh, motoring, wasn't it? It was. The, um, in, in fact, most of them, the, the bike dealers uh, ended up being car dealers because you, you come back to how it all worked and bikes were a mass transport. They were mass produced and uh, they had the marketers and sellers of those vehicles had shops all over the place. So it was an ideal template then for going into cars and selling cars of all brands. So 
Edward Eager had a bike shop uh, in Toledo. He came back from a trip to Europe when he was employed by Henry Ford, and he found that John Willys had started a factory in his little town. So it, it just made sense for him to hop into bed, if you like that term, with John Willys and start marketing and selling those vehicles. But Willys wanted to uh, sell them himself in America, so he ended up, uh, Edward Eager ended up with the franchise for the uh, Southern Hemisphere and also Africa, which he relinquished a bit later. Tyres came into it too. Uh, Edward did a little bit of work for Goodyear, was it? And did that give him some other expertise? Well, I think both the trips, the, the trip he did a big trip with uh, Henry Ford into Europe. He did a bit of a wider trip uh, with the tyre company. And what it did, it opened his eyes to the world market, how you were selling cars overseas. And this is in the very early days, of course, of, of cars. You know, 1911 is only three years after the T-model was produced. And the T-model was, of course, a great car. It was the first mass-produced car. So it opened his eyes to greenfield markets, places where... There wasn't much happening, and I think Australia was uh, and New Zealand for him were really good markets. Uh, we we all spoke English, so that made it easy, and certainly uh, Australia had a much better climate than say Toledo. So I think he was happy to go what we now know as down under and start up a, an importing business, and uh, then having dealerships of his own, plus being an importer for other people who wanted to market. Willie's cars. You mentioned the Model T. It was significantly cheaper. What a third of price, and if some of the others, maybe half a price, half the price of some of the others. But it did have its drawbacks. I think lighting wasn't its strongest point. <laughs> no, um, lighting was an interesting uh, thing to be involved in with an, uh, a T model because the lighting was dependent on the engine revs. And uh, if you, the faster you went, the, the brighter the lights got. But if you broke down, you had no lights. And they ended up, I think, putting uh, kerosene lamps on either side of the car. <laughs> it sounds like the early Holdens and Volkswagens, was it, that had windscreen wipers that uh, worked off a similar system? Yeah. And you said it was hard to change gear with them. So which particular part of the market might that have gone against? I think it might have gone against the female side of the market. And also, I think it went against the a lot of farmers who were accustomed to saying, whoa, whoa, and holding their horses and telling their horses to stop, you know, if they came to a gully or something. Yes. And uh, the transition for those people into a motorised vehicle, such as the, the T-model, at times was quite disastrous because they were so used to saying, whoa, whoa, after 20, 30 years of it, and quite often there were crashes in T-models in particular because they were saying war and forgetting to hit the brake. The people that use these cars, it wasn't just the decadent joy of private motoring. Doctors and things, it, it, it was a, a major part of uh, keeping services to regional areas? Doctors in particular, yeah, because they, they were often called out at night to deliver babies and help people with um, different ailments in outlying places. So um, before that, they'd have to get up at two in the morning and uh, harness their horse to the carriage and uh, off they go, you know, a few miles away to, to help some poor person who was in trouble. 
um, the car changed that uh, to a great extent because they could just go out and uh, get the car started um, in some cases with a crank handle and off they go with uh, lights and everything to, to show them the way and uh, get there quicker than otherwise, which may well have saved lives. So that whole transfer of transport from the horse and buggy, the bike, the bicycle was a little bit of an interim step, wasn't it? And really perhaps just an urban or more urban than uh, the car became. The car began to solve a multitude of problems. A lot of people at the time thought the car would actually replace trains. That's how important the car was seen. Um, Problem, the real problem the car had, uh, and you probably picked up on this, is the quality of the roads. Mm. If you're a salesman for Willys or Studi Baker or any of those companies in this era, your biggest obstacle to overcome in selling a car was the state of the roads because cars would get bogged and guess what's going to pull them out? Horses. Yes. So there was a lot of uh, cynicism uh, at, at times for the car. We will come to that a little bit more when we hear what Edward did in terms of publicising, which I thought was uh, particularly clever. But you did start to introduce a few characters early in there, and one of them had a a bike racing, a cycle racing background, Alec Fraser Jewell. Now, he's a very successful cycling competitor. He's a bit of a rogue. How did his driving record develop? Downhill, really. Uh, He... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Downhill was where he got the greatest speed. <laughs> he was uh, obsessed with cars. He was certainly one of Australia's first motorists. Not the first, as he claimed, but he was certainly one of the early ones. And uh, one stage he had a Gladiator bicycle, which was a four-wheel bicycle, and converted that into a car, I think, 1901 in Perth. Oh. So he was a very, very... Um, uh, early starter in regard to the automobile and uh, he unfortunately when he got behind the wheel he suffered from what some footballers do which is white line fever and he always seemed to think he was on the racetrack not on the public road and uh, that led him to be uh, quite a regular visitor to a number of courthouses in uh, Perth, Melbourne and uh, even Brisbane. He developed the art of talking his way out of things, didn't he? He was uh, not that well educated, but he was very street smart and very, very fast on his feet uh, before a magistrate. And he had the the knack to muddy the waters enough that it threw a doubt into the magistrate's mind. And the court cases and the charges that he got off were, um, it was quite breathtaking to read it, actually, in the... Uh, you have to dip your lid to him in that regard because a lot of those charges he should never have got off, including a fatal one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a tragedy. This was, of course, starting to develop, uh, particularly uh, leading up to the First World War. Now, we didn't like the Germans then, but we took a dislike to American product as well. Why was that? Because... Uh, the Allies were at war, you know, the Brits were there, the Indians there, the Aussies were there and fighting the uh, uh, the Germans in the trenches and all of this thing in World War One, and uh, fighting for the French. And where were the Americans? Hmm. They didn't enter the war. And uh, that, that caused quite a bit of dislike from Australia towards uh, the Americans. Um, I actually think that 
in some ways impacted on uh, uh, Fred and Edward Eager in their business in Brisbane in particular. Being from America, was that a disadvantage? I believe it was, yeah. Not so, maybe not so much America, but they were seen as outsiders, whereas most of the other car dealerships in Brisbane were owned by locals. So, as you know, Brisbane's a fairly parochial town, <laughs> and I can imagine back in this era, 1911 or 12, when they started up, that parochialism was, uh, if you had an American accent, you were an outsider. Hmm. Actually, I remember when I first moved to Townsville from Melbourne, and uh, I was always considered a, a southerner, and I don't think it, that's much different to the way Fred was regarded by people too, with a, you know, he's just a southerner, as you fly by night, or what is he, and I think that uh, there was a bit of that, and through the book you'll see various examples where Fred sort of got, uh, and Edward Eager, both of them got uh, a little bit of a cold shoulder. Anti-American feeling wasn't just at the street level. I think the federal government had some policies to their departments for a while that made Ford have to think about what they called their product. Yeah, there's a lot of sentiment about buying British product or other colonials products like tea from India or Ceylon. They were allies. They were in the war. T-Model Fords were the best-selling car in the world at that stage. And um, as a result of this animosity towards the Americans, Australia uh, ended up uh, sourcing its T-Model Fords out of Canada Mm. because they had a major factory there too. So there was um, things like that that really showed um, the depth of feeling, I think, uh, against the Americans for not uh, helping out the, the Brits in their time of need. The federal government said that uh, their departments couldn't buy a Ford product for a while there, wasn't it? it yes. It's a pretty he- heavy-handed sort of approach. Depends, I guess, on your feeling, but certainly a strong approach. Mm. It wasn't light-hearted in any way. No, I th- look, I think the thing was that if you bought from America, uh, the profits of whatever you bought didn't go into the war effort, and Britain certainly needed as much money as it can get to fight the war. Mm. I think there's an example in there where there was an advertisement taken out. If you're going to buy tea, buy Lipton's or the other brands that were sourced out of India and Sri Lanka because the British government, with their taxes, etc., got £8 million a year out of the sales of tea. So there was a very strong feeling we must uh, be together on this. Uh, We're all in the same boat and buy British or British colonial, and that was the reason, uh, because it helped the war effort indirectly. In fact, some motoring clubs, I think the Brisbane Motoring Club, was it, that started up uh, around this time and then began to hold patriotic events, wasn't it, where, uh, you know, I guess you paid a bit to come and see it, but the purpose of it was to raise funds? Uh, Patriotism was strong? Uh, It was very strong, and uh, the the two main companies in the book, CCM, Canada Cycle and Motor, and uh, Eager, E.G. Eager and Son, were both very strongly behind the war effort. So there'd be patriotic days uh, started, and they'd go along, and the, the cars would be there doing all these funny tricks, and it it was to raise money for the 
the patriotism of the locals so that that money could then be put towards whatever benefit they could see. CCM, for instance, they built a Studebaker um, gun carrier and donated it to the war effort. Fred Eager and Edward Eager um, built an ambulance on a Willys uh, chassis uh, and that was donated to the war effort. Um, when the soldiers came back injured, um, the ACQ, the the uh, name of the RACQ before I'd become royal, mm. They organised for uh, the car dealers to uh, pick up wounded soldiers and take them to their homes or to hospital or repatriation hospitals. So there was a lot of patriotism going around, not just in Brisbane, I think it was in all the major capitals of Australia. The Brisbane Courier, the Courier at the time was the newspaper. I think the paid-for advertising there got a bit flamboyant. It was became strongly entertaining. Having scanned all of those newspapers uh, when I was doing the research, I think the most interesting reading in the whole paper was the uh, car advertisements. Um, they, were, they were always having a dig at each other. So someone had come out and say, well, you know, we've now got a six-cylinder car and everything else about it and rave on about it. And the next thing you know, a week later, there'd be an ad saying, well, we've had a six-cylinder for the last three years. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just there was a lot of argy-bargy that went on between the dealers, and usually it was just about product. Um, it did, however, get uh, a bit more personal later on. That then led to what ultimately became a competition, or very much became a competition. But Edward Eager, the, the head of his company, and uh, with the young son coming on very strongly, he did something that could have become, well, crass self-promoting. What did he do? He started his own motoring magazine. <laughs> now, the, the, the reason he did that is because the, uh, the courier at the time uh, was more than happy to take a lot of uh, dollars, advertising dollars off the motor dealers, you know, the Eagers and the CCMs and so on. However, they didn't have a motoring writer. So basically, the motoring pages were just advertisements. So Edward Eager saw two things out of it. Firstly, an opportunity to start a business. And secondly, uh, a means of the motor industry, not just the Eagers, but the motor industry in Brisbane, having a say about all of the issues that were prevalent at the time that weren't being addressed, uh, such as the state of the roads. Because at the end of the day, if you could improve the roads, that would take out one of the impediments to salesmen being able to sell cars. It had stopped that, uh, you know, little bit of hesitation or, you know, we'll get bogged and all of that thing. And so they were, the, the steering wheel was the name of the magazine he started and it was very much a lobbying type of a magazine in regard to roads and uh, the other issues that were facing motorists. I think he became, got an editor to do it, but he, he really drew the line in the sand that he didn't want to see it as being his thing. I think the steering wheel talked about, if I quote your, your book, un, they didn't want to be like the Brisbane Courier, unwholesome, immoral and quick advertising will be excluded from the steering wheel. <laughs> it's part of their editorial policy. Uh, and in fact, that really actually proved quite successful, didn't it? It did. It was it was making money after about fourteen months, and uh, 
uh, Edward Eagle was financing uh, the steering wheel. Um, significantly, all but one of the dealers in Brisbane came on board and advertised in the steering wheel, even though it was a product of E.G. Eager and some. Mm. And that speaks volumes, I think, for Edward Eager's, the respect in which he was held for the way in which he conducted his business. They were very brash, but he held respect of the other dealers. Otherwise, he wouldn't have got all those other dealers to take some of their advertising money away from the courier and put it into his motoring magazine. The one who didn't was CCM, thus reinforcing the uh, divide between those two companies that, that became even more stronger as the days went on? I think so. The, it, it, if, you, if you look at it, CCM were the, the, the two products of, of each of the companies, the products they had were very much at um, a level that they were very high competitively against each other. And there's no way known that A.V. Dodwell was going to have any of his money earned from Studebakers financing a motoring magazine that was uh, owned by someone that was selling willies. So the the rift basically started then uh, between the two companies. That was the very beginning of it. It was an important magazine. They they addressed issues of, I think, you're, what you're saying, of drink driving, safe driving, pedestrians, technical aspects of automobile, the police, yep. and they covered it all. Uh, that's rather important. I mean, I think there was one lovely comment you said uh, that they recognised that the roads were built very well but not maintained. Yeah, that was a, a quote directly in regard to the road between Brisbane and Toowoomba. And... Uh, uh, that road, and it's even today, it's not the best road. But in those days, it was uh, little more than a goat track, and um, they they took on the hard issues. They were prepared to have a go at governments, um, state and federal, about funding road, and then they had a go at councils for if you can have a road, for goodness sake, maintain it. Don't let it deteriorate. So maintenance was a big issue. Uh, at that time too with the roads that they did build that were good. I have some traffic engineering colleagues who are meticulous about the needs for signposting. How would you represent the signposting quality at that that time in Brisbane and surrounds? Non-existent. (laughs) 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 Uh, That was another major issue and that was an issue that uh, the steering wheel addressed themselves. And uh, due to the fact that Fred Eager got into Whitey most weekends and that Whitey was his car, the, the uh, Willys Overland 1912 model, and he would go all over the place and he recorded distances. And it started a bit of a trend because the other uh, people that were driving around at weekends also did it. So you'd, you'd find the steering wheel with a, uh, a page and it'd say, well, this is how you get to Southport. And uh, it was done on a, an odometer basis. So you go 12 kilometres or 12 miles this way and you'll see a, a tree there and a, a track turn left because that'll take you through X, Y, Z. And there were no signs. So you had roads going off to farms and roads that were actually headed to a town, but you didn't know what, what that road was. And so they started putting basically the road signs in the steering wheel for people to follow 
not just the south coast, but also up the north coast, the Sunshine Coast. They also took the understandable but not necessarily popular position of uh, talking about a wheel tax, that you taxed vehicles proportionally to the damage they did to the road. Yeah, yeah. That would be an interesting one to bring in today, wouldn't it? <laughs> if the truck industry would... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, well, it is a major issue that we have a road user charge, as you know, yeah, that, uh, yeah. not necessarily to raise more money, but to raise money equitably and encourage people to use the right roads. I mean, back, back then in those days, of course, there was also a lot of ferry charges, which made it difficult. But the, you talked then about what is really a hands-on approach from Edward's son, Fred. He was... Uh, you know, both business savvy, but he was very hands-on? Yes. He saw the benefit of going on tours to various parts around one one day trips out of Brisbane. Um, and he explored a lot of places. His car was the first up, up a number of hills and he would then write about that because what he was doing was trying to say people, you can get your horse and buggy and you can go maybe 10 kilometres in a day and go there and have a picnic and come back five kilometres each way. If you've got a car, you can do 50 miles. You can go 50 miles away from home, explore this area and then still be back at home that night. So he was selling the sizzle of owning a car. (laughs) And the sizzle started to get competitive. And I think it really focused early on on the Hamilton Hill Climb. Where was that and what was it like? Hamilton's a suburb uh, just to the east of east of the CBD in Brisbane and there was a bit of a hill there and uh, this was the ACQ, the Automobile Club of Queensland's first hill climb event and um, it was a very short track, uh, quite steep and... Um, they invited up a couple of the guns from Sydney, um, Boyd Edkins and C. Munro, and then you had the locals also involved. And uh, at the end of the day, Munro and Edkins uh, gave them a lesson in how to drive in a hill climb. And uh, the Brisbane lads uh, knew they had to really up their game with their cars and their driving talents if they were going to compete uh, in a way in which they'd be you know, competitive with the best that the South had. Fred was you know, heir apparent, I think, at that stage for the company. He could have been arrogant. Was he smart enough to learn? He was. He, um, I think he would have gone back uh, on the Monday after the, the, uh, the ACQ hill climb and he and uh, his father, Edward, would have had a, a serious discussion about what they're going to do. Um, because they either had to keep out of the competitive realm of motorsport or go in uh, full on. And I think, um, I don't know why they were so slow to take that up, given that they grew up in the same town as uh, Barney Oldsmith, (laughs) who was the the great American driver. And they were very (laughs) slow to learn the lesson of uh, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. So... Yeah. I think they had a serious discussion and, and they uh, Fred went out and uh, he was given the OK to choose a vehicle from the second-hand cars that came in 
and uh, he chose the one with the most powerful engine and the smallest body was a touring car body but he chose that and that became their what they called their promotional car but these days uh, it was simply a race car really and it had a distinctive color yes um i think uh, fred went out one day and his mechanic that had uh, done all the work and overseen the work on uh whitey uh, fred saw it and he said we'll call it whitey he painted it white which is was not usual in that era uh, i mean every second car was a t model and as you know you can get a team model in any colour you like as long as it was black. So um, he, he, his mechanic bucked the trend and, and painted uh, painted it white. Um, it's still white today. The car is still on the road. It's 109 years of age and uh, it's, it's simply magnificent. I had a ride in it uh, a couple of months ago. They took me for a ride. The owners, I was amazed at how much power it had. You've got a bit of an affection for that, haven't you? Because it appears on the front cover of your book. It appears on the front cover mainly because it was the sharpest image we had from that era. <laughs> <laughs> it's all to do with marketing, it isn't was, it? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Although we, uh, I'm, we think there's a market for the book in America, and I think we, I think there's a big market with Studebaker because of the uh, the big Studebaker uh, museum there in South Bend. Yes. So I think we may well change the front cover to a Studebaker for the American market. Now, the hill climb there went for a while, but there was also climbing a couple of mountains. They were not just sort of head-to-head races for a while, were they? They were also endurance events and and uh, achievement events. What was the name of that mountain they climbed? Mount Glorious? Yes. Mount Gravatt was climbed, not by uh, Eager to start with, but... The, the, yeah, there was a big... It was all about showing your car could take you to places that um, maybe horses couldn't get to with a wagon behind them um, and you could you know, see over Brisbane. So um, it became quite a... It wasn't a race, but indirectly it was because it was, once again, uh, it's all about win on Sunday, sell on Monday. So if you could get your car up Mount Gravatt or Mount, uh, Mount Glorious and be the first car to climb those uh, hills around Brisbane, um, there's an ad in the paper and maybe even a, a uh, news story. Hmm. So it, it was all about selling cars, simple, simple as that. You mentioned that Bernie Oldfield, was it, uh, that uh, came from Toledo? Just Barney Oldfield? Yeah, uh, just as a, an aside, he, he had a reputation for being a bit of a speedster too, didn't he? He certainly did. Um, and it, it came from, he learnt the art of how to steer a car on a dirt road around corners. He was supposedly the first person to actually um, develop the art of doing that. Um, and I think your good self has probably steered a few cars at speed on a dirt road. <laughs> and it's an interesting exercise, um, one that, that takes a fair bit of practice to get on top of. And Barney Oldfield certainly did that. Um, you know, you throw the rear end out and go through the corner and then uh, use the steering wheel to direct yourself into the next uh, bit of straight dirt. And it's something that, Fred Eagle learned um, after he and Edward decided they needed to get a bit serious about this motorsport. Yeah. 
I'm still amazed that he is the, well, became the general manager and owner of the company and so on, that here he was uh, you know, with almost shirt and tie sort of doing this sort of stuff and knowing that he had to perfect it. I, I, I have a lot of time for the man. Bernie, I think, was one that uh, we've seen the same expression apply much later to Sterling Moss and Jack Brabham, wasn't it? That when you were caught, who do you, who do you think you were? He was perhaps one of the first people to have that particular approach assigned to him? Yeah, very much, very much, yeah. And, of course, um, you know, if anyone was speeding in America, people would say, who do you think you are, Barney Oldfield? <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that was... And we, we had the same thing in Australia. Who do you think you are, Jack Brabham, you know, yeah, back in the day. Um, so it was, um, you know, I think when you get to the stage where people say those things about you, you've sort of made it pretty big. And certainly certainly Jack did and certainly uh, Barney did too. Fred, uh, now the son, is really spearheading this particular approach and competing in driving it. He won uh, quite a few hill climbs and other things, but that really then led to this final big challenge of the land speed record in Australia. How did that happen and where did they ultimately decide to do it? How it happened um, was it comes back to, again, come to car sales, as simple as that. At the time, 1916, uh, Baker had brought out their Studebaker 6 and that was their first six-cylinder engine and uh, Erskine, the new general manager there in South Bend, Indiana, um, put out an edict that Judy Baker is now a six-cylinder car company. End of story. And that was circulated around the world. Also circulated around the world was when you get your Studi Baker sixes in stock, you must enter them in every race you possibly can and win them. Mm. Now, the problem was CCM were keen to do that and uh, they tried to beat Fred Eager in hill climbs. And by this time, Fred Eager's learnt uh, the art of driving on gravel up hills at speed, and he was unbeatable. He beat Boyd Edkins. Um, he beat Munro. He beat... Uh, I forgot the name of the guy, but he beat the guy in a Studebaker, um, hmm. Matos. So they couldn't beat Fred Eager in hill climbs. In the second hill climb, um, Studebaker entered their Studebaker 6, and it was uh, about four or five seconds off the time of Fred Eager. The problem for CCM was that you couldn't run the advertisements. You can't say, well, we came second and convince buyers that you've got the best car. So they really had a problem. Uh, they needed to win races so they could run advertisements saying Studebaker a winner. So... They sat down after they realised they couldn't beat Fred on the uh, the hill climb at One Tree Hill, which is now Mount Cutha, uh, outside Brisbane where all the TV aerials are. So they sat down and they said, must have said, well, we've got to do something about this. There's got to be a way to beat Fred Eager. So they decided to have a land speed record on the sand on Christmas Day at low tide at what was Southport Beach. That's now called Surface Paradise. So the, the, the fact that it was a straight line race took all of Fred's steering ability out of the equation. Ah. And that was the main thing they needed to do because the Studebaker was certainly 
capable of very fast speeds. And um, it had a much bigger engine. It was over a six-litre, six-cylinder engine. Uh, Fred's car had a four-cylinder, 4.4-litre um, uh, engine. They were both big engines, but six litres is, is a fair-sized engine in uh, anyone's terms. So that's how uh, the race uh, came about. And at uh, Southport Beach was... Um, the venue at very low tide, the sand should have been as hard as concrete, but unfortunately there were a few showers around and uh, the, both the cars finished very closely together with one just in front of the other. Mm. I think they could have got higher speeds if uh, it hadn't been rainy and squally during the afternoon. What sort of speeds are we talking about, given that what were the speed limits on the roads at the time? Generally, um, in Brisbane, it was about 12, but some roads were up to uh, the God-fearing speed of 20 miles per hour. So that was that was the <laughs> average on the two of, of sort of certain roads, and it wasn't much different in Melbourne or Sydney, I don't think. They um, they reached speeds of just over 84 miles per hour and 82 miles per hour, which is well over 130 kilometres an hour. On a, on a wet beach. That was brave. And, of course, uh, CCM had brought in back our, our old renowned rogue and colleague of uh, Alec Jewell, hadn't they? Uh, he'd raced for them a bit, and this was, I guess, his crowning glory? Um, yeah, look, uh, he won two events in uh, the Studio Baker 6. Um, the first event was the land speed record, and uh, for that... That's the one we've been talking about down at Southport Beach or Surface Paradise. And uh, he he did very well in that, uh, that uh, particular race. The car had a magnificent body on it. They'd produced this aerodynamic body. It looked like a, almost like a dolphin on wheels. And uh, Fred Eager had kept to a very uh, standard sort of a body on his lightweight racing body, but it didn't have any real aerodynamics about it. So he did very well in uh, that race. And I think at the time that intercity racing was probably bigger than a land speed record. And it was probably bigger than the hill climbs. Mm. So uh, three weeks after uh, the beach event, um, the Studi Baker six rolled out and looked nothing like the car that had raced on the beach. The aerodynamic body was gone. Uh, another lightweight body was fitted with three massive headlights on it. Um, the boot was gone and they had spare wheels strapped to the back of it. Uh, it was a magnificent looking car. So it then went down to Sydney in the third week of January 1916 and uh, drove back uh, flat out to uh, Brisbane and broke uh, that particular record. And it was a magnificent feat of driving and reliability of the Studio Baker. It was simply magnificent what they did. There's a photo in the book, actually, of the, you may have seen it with the Studio Baker covered in dirt, like two and three inches deep. Yes, it certainly showed that it was a brave time. And I think uh, other attempts in that, of course, always had to cope with things like river crossings. River crossings, deep mud, uh, you name it. They, uh, there was actually one interesting river crossing that the Studi Baker did, and they 
came to this river down uh, north of Sydney. You know, I think they were a few hours into the race and they just thought they'd go over the bridge and continue on. Trouble is, halfway along the bridge, there was a traction engine that had broken through the bridge and fallen through and was still embedded. And uh, so uh, Alec Jewell and uh, Jack Walsh, the co-driver, had to think, well, what are we going to do here? So uh, Alec got a torch and said, "Okay, you go back a, a long way. I'll get the narrowest part of the river and I'll shine the torch and you come flat out and see if you can get over. Um, oh, my Lord. Yeah, true, true story. And um, somehow uh, he flattened the Studi Bacon and uh, it must have been doing like 40 or 50 mile an hour and uh, it successfully crossed the road, uh, the river rather, and uh, they continued on. Um, they oh. then had, uh, I don't know, a couple of hundred kilometres of, or yeah, kilometres of very deep, muddy black soil through the... Uh, the area between uh, like Warwick and Brisbane itself, and that was where they picked up that uh, horrendous amount of dirt all over the car and themselves. And they still had the chains on the rear wheels when they rocked into Brisbane. And we complain if there's not enough fast food locations along a major road. First world problem. Whitey, even though it didn't win, did had they upgraded the motor by then? Had they put in the new motor? No, they um, they stuck with the four cylinder. Um, they did put in a uh, high um, range diff, and the car was pretty much serviced and all the other bits and pieces. Um, however, two years later, in 1918, um, something very interesting happened to Whitey. Fred Eager imported a highly developed V8, which was destined to be uh, not that particular engine, but these V8s were developed for the Indianapolis race. And he got his hands on one and had Wally Webb, his mechanic, fitted to Whitey. And the cover shot that you see that we, we mentioned before if you look closely, there's four pipes coming out of the uh, side of the bonnet. And there were four pipes on the other. So we know that's mm. the Whitey with a V8. But um, Wally Webb took it for a drive. His mechanic took it for a drive and came back and said to Fred, look, you better take it for a drive. I've finished it. And uh, so Fred got in the uh, behind the wheel and he said, well, come on, Wally, you're always sitting next to me. And Wally said, Webb said, there's no way known I'm getting in there, Fred, with you. You only know one speed and that's flat out. So Fred went off and came back about 20 minutes later and uh, the car didn't steer. Massive understeer. Yeah. So uh, he said to Wally, OK, put it back to what it was before. So put, oh, yeah. put the four-cylinder engine back in. Um, those, the four-cylinder engine, by the way, is uh, each cylinder was cast uh, individually. Ah. So uh, and then it was put together, and I, I think the major thing that holds it together was the crankshaft. Wonderful examples from very early in motoring of a balance in a car rather than sheer horsepower. And going back to your point about the land speed record, it was one of aerodynamics, not just a, a big motor. There's some wonderful lessons there that we sometimes think we're very smart about knowing now, but really they had touched on from the earliest days. 
Yeah. Look, honestly, I I really think that um, Fred's car would have been closer to winning if they had had a similar sort of body to the Studebaker. Now, what all that tells you is that they were outsmarted by CCM and the body. It's as simple as that. Mm. That's not saying Fred would have been the Studebaker, but it would have been a bit closer because the aerodynamics on the Studebaker were simply magnificent. He, he even had discs on the wheels to, um, once again, give it a smoother ride over the sand at a high, high speed. So very, very clever. Is that the way they also took the shock absorbers off? Um, Alec Jewell insisted the shock absorbers came off. He wanted the car as light as it could possibly be. Um, and the interesting thing, too, if you look at the photos, there are, there are only two photos of the two cars on the beach at speed. And if you look at the Studebaker one, you'll see the rear left wheel is off the ground. Now, I reckon that would be that would be a dirty underpants moment. <laughs> Murray, I think it is a wonderfully rollicking yarn. You now got it to book in bookstores. Yeah, it's rolling out in bookstores now. Um, actually, I put some up the other day about fifteen that have, have taken the book on. And uh, if, you, if you can't find a bookshop, they will actually order it in off uh, Woods Lane, the distributor. Um, and also, if you just uh, Google Car Wars Down Under, you can uh, get it online off Booktopia and uh, a number of other companies that have got uh, the book in stock. What's it worth? Oh. Well, I know what it's worth. I'm sorry. I think it's it's wonderful. But uh, yeah. what I should have said was, what does it? What's the remarkably low price? The the RRP is twenty nine ninety five, and um, there of course it's illustrated with a, a lot of images in there of the cars and uh, some even some cartoons of the time, and. Um, there's some other stories in there too. There's another character um, you probably read, the one on Professor Starlight. Um, oh yes, another colourful character. Yeah, uh, he was a heavyweight boxing middle middleweight uh, performer. Yep. Was yeah, middleweight. Yeah, middleweight, middleweight. Was it? You you think? Oh, some thought that he might have even made the world championship. Uh, no, I think that was another one, Peter. Um, Oh, oh, that was um, Jackson. Peter, Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Yeah, he, yeah sorry. He, he he would have been, um, apart from, I think, the colour bar, the champion wouldn't fight a, a coloured man. Um, I think it's generally acknowledged he, he would have become at some stage a world champion. And he was um, Professor Starlight's best mate, essentially. And they were a couple right. of uh, coloured boxers in that era who uh, did very well and uh, loved Australia. And Australia loved and him. he, I think it was was it Jackson that uh, was injured and walked with a cane. And where did that no, cane no, that come was, from? That's Professor Starlight. That um, is okay. But uh, uh, the cane that he used is really interesting. The cane was given to Professor Starlight. He was known as Starlight only, and uh, he he went over to London to box. He wanted to go back there not as um, uh, Edward Rollins, just a, a seaman off a ship. He wanted to go back as um, Starlight champion boxer. So he made his way to London and uh, Peter Jackson was there at the same time and he fought 
and I think the London club lost the fight and he was in the rooms after and uh, Prince Edward came in and, and said, Starlight, Professor Starlight, I'm glad to meet you. And uh, he, the name Professor Starlight stu- uh, struck, uh, stuck with him rather. And um, <laughs> he and Peter Jackson were invited by the prince to go back to one of the, the palaces. And uh, he took them all around the gardens. And when they were time came to go, he presented Starlight with a, a walking cane, um, which he held on to for many years, but eventually needed it um, after a car accident where uh, a certain race driver was driving at his usual pace on the racetrack, but he was on a public road. <laughs> Did, do we need mention his name? <laughs> uh, I, I think people have got the gist by this. <laughs> it has been mentioned in our conversation before. Mm. Murray, this is lovely stuff. I, I've enjoyed our chat immensely. Uh, I appreciate all the time you've given, and I, I deeply appreciate the depth and the, the character of which you brought to a motoring story that's not just mechanics. It's the life and times of the whole exercise, and thank you very much for all your efforts. Oh, uh, thank you very much for having me on today. I really appreciate it, David. Murray Hubbard, who is an experienced journalist, uh, not just in motoring, but in a wide range of things, including investigative journalism and really understanding the people behind an event, who's written the great book, Car Wars Down Under, the untold story of Australia's first land speed record. Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.